good Sunday morning, and welcome to Forgiven, the weekly radio broadcast of Northeast Baptist Church of Danbury. We're happy that you tuned in today, and we hope you will find the program beneficial to you. Now, here's our pastor, Joe Vassar. Today is a very special Sunday for us. Today marks our 500th consecutive week to be on the air on WLAD. We count it a great honor to be coming into the homes and the vehicles and the lives of the people of the city of Danbury and the surrounding areas for all this time. I want to say thank you to the staff of WLAD, especially Bart Pasterna, for the way that you have so kindly and patiently taken care of us all this time. Thank you to the people of Northeast Baptist Church who have generously and sacrificially given to keep the Forgiven broadcast on the air week after week. And thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in. I get so many kind phone calls, emails, letters. It's a very special thing to connect with you through the airwaves each Sunday. Today we're going to consider a very sobering topic, one that affects every single American and our children and our grandchildren. Some Americans would no doubt hear what I'm going to say and be very happy about it. But most people, and I think we may still be ever so slightly in the majority, most people, I think, would agree that what I have to say is negative, not positive. I want to begin by asking you to consider the distinction between the culture and politics. And by politics, I'm including government, because especially in these days, you can't sever politics and government. They're so closely woven together, both in reality and in our perception. Let's talk about the distinction between the culture and politics for a minute. So many issues, when we hear them discussed, we're unfortunately very quick to brush them aside and say, well, I just don't like to discuss politics. When many times the issue is not a political issue at all. It's an issue having to do with our culture. Ignoring politics is one thing, but to ignore the condition of our culture, that's just irresponsible. Nevertheless, most people do it. So let's draw some distinctions between the culture and matters of politics and government. Our culture is who we are as a people. It's what's acceptable to us as a people. Our culture is our collective lifestyle. Now, it's true that our cultures vary some from state to state and from region to region. For example, if you were to get on a plane full of Northeasterners, you'd find for the most part that people don't want to talk to each other. You get in your seat. I'll get in mine. We'll each mind our own business. I'll leave you alone if you'll leave me alone, and we'll all be happy. Now, that's the Northeastern culture, and I have to say, as a lifelong Northeasterner, that's pretty much how I like it. But if you ever happen to be on a connecting flight somewhere, say down south or in the Midwest, and the plane is filled with non-Northeasterners, well, your experience may be completely different. Total strangers making small talk. Hey, what's your name? Where are you from? Where are you headed? What do you do for a living? Are you married? Do you have kids? Let me tell you about my kids. You know, I almost didn't make this flight. Let me tell you all about it. Small talk among strangers. I can't identify with that at all. And that's going on all over the plane. And that's a regional cultural difference. But there are certain things that are hopefully still true of the American culture, no matter what region you're in. You let somebody aggressively hassle a helpless or indefensible person on a plane, it doesn't matter how antisocial the setting on the plane is, in most cases there are going to be a few people who step up and say to the hassler, hey, knock it off. It's still part of the American culture to some extent to stand up one for another. So our culture is our collective lifestyle. And though it varies a little from region to region, there's still an American culture that generally defines us. 
Our culture is our popular opinions. It's our behavioral boundaries. It's our standards of what is acceptable. It's our collective system of beliefs. It's not written down anywhere. It's just understood. It's our protocols, our code of conduct. It's our basic definition of right and wrong. These aren't legislated or mandated. They're things that we just expect of ourselves and of one another. That's the culture. Politics, on the other hand, concern who we select to govern us and how we select them. Politics are a part of the culture, but they are not the culture. That's so important to understand. One reason is that so many of us are so quick to blame everything on politicians when, in fact, cultural failures are our fault. We've got to fix them. Politics and government can never fix the culture. The best they can do is to patch up some of the holes. If we want the culture fixed, we've got to do it ourselves. Politics are a part of the culture, but they are not the culture. Politics are the overflow of the culture. The division in government is a reflection of the division in the culture. The turmoil in government is just a reflection of the turmoil in the culture. The dishonesty in government is a reflection of the dishonesty in the culture. The corruption in government is merely a reflection of the corruption in the culture. Politics and government are the overflow of the culture. Politics can change quickly. But the culture changes much more gradually. Politics are like a pot of water on the stove that can boil over at any time. But the culture is more like a crock pot slowly brewing. My eyes are never primarily on politics. They are always trained on the culture because the culture is what really matters. When something happens in politics or government, my first question is, what does that say about the culture? When it's all said and done, even though the government can oppress us, restrict us, regulate us, and control us, ultimately, it's our culture that will direct our course and impact our future. It's our culture that will decide what kind of country our children and grandchildren will have to grow up in. It's our culture that will decide whether or not we continue to enjoy the freedoms that are unique to America, the freedoms that were handed to us by our parents, the freedoms that make the whole world want to do whatever it takes to come here. It's not legislators or politicians who uphold or take away our liberties. It's our culture that will do that. It's our culture that will decide whether or not we continue to enjoy the opportunities that are unique to our country. It's our culture that will determine whether we will ultimately trade the liberty to start and build a business for the bondage of litigation and regulation. It's our culture that will determine whether we will trade the liberty to pursue a career for the bondage of having our trades and skills chosen for us. It is our culture that will decide whether we will trade the liberty to take chances for the bondage of government dependence. It's our culture that will decide if we must trade the liberty to explore for the bondage of being told what we can and cannot think, what we can and cannot see, what we can and cannot say. It's our culture that will decide whether we will forfeit the liberty to invent and create for the bondage of political correctness and groupthink. You say, no, if these things are taken away from us, it's government that will do that. No, that's not true. Governments may or may not strike the final blow, but it's the culture that puts them into position to do it. It's definitely true that America's enemies have strategized to destroy our culture over the past decades. 
If you read the list of 45 goals that the Communist Party had for America as laid out in the book The Naked Communist in 1958 and entered into the congressional record in 1963, it is chilling how they have succeeded at impacting our culture, how much our American culture currently resembles the objectives they laid out over 60 years ago. Over the years, other groups have stated similar goals. In 1991, the Muslim Brotherhood issued their game plan for destroying American civilization from within, and they've executed it quite successfully and deceptively. But wait a minute. The decline of our culture is not primarily the result of the efforts of outsiders. Our enemies may be evil and devious, but the fact is we are the ones who've allowed ourselves to be duped. We are the ones who failed to stand guard at the gates of our minds, our homes, our churches, our schools. We are the ones who've been negligent and irresponsible as the stewards of our own culture. You see, any culture left to itself will decline. That's just a rule of humanity based on the fact that we're a fallen race, a race that has rebelled against our creator. Any culture left to itself will decline. You know that just in general. You know that anything left to itself, anything that is not maintained, will not improve. It'll decline. You make a study of any culture in world history when the people were not diligent to hold the line and to improve, to morally mature and grow. That culture deteriorated drastically. If you're 40 or 50 years old or older, you've watched the deterioration of our culture happen right before your eyes. Take any element of behavior in our society, and you know good and well you've watched it decline. Take something as basic as our speech. In the 1950s, profanity, foul language, taking God's name in vain. These things were not acceptable, not out in public, not on TV shows, not in our music, not anywhere. You can track it just by studying TV reruns in the 60s and 70s and 80s right until today. There was a day when men wouldn't use four-letter words in front of a lady or children. Yeah, but speech, really, that's pretty harmless, isn't it? Well, even though I don't agree with that, I mean, loose speech leads to loose behavior. That's a fact. But even though I don't agree that speech is harmless, that's just the beginning of where we see the evidence of the decline of our culture. How about our attitude towards unmarried people living together? In the 50s, the I Love Lucy show, they wouldn't even let Ricky and Lucy sleep in the same bed on TV. And they were not only portraying a married couple, they were married in real life. But the culture demanded that the values and entertainment be above reproach. We had a moral code in the culture that held physical relationships as sacred, reserved for marriage. Now, 60 years later... It's expected that people sleep together and live together without being married. Marriage doesn't even mean anything anymore. And divorce is just a normal, accepted part of most people's lives. The decline, the decay of the culture, we've let it happen. Follow the songs, the TV shows, the movies through the 60s, 70s, the 80s till now. And gradually, one breach of moral values has led to the next. Our culture has declined while we stand by and say, what's the big deal? While we cave because we're having too much fun. Or at best, we don't want anybody to think of us as the square, the stuffed shirt. You can track the decline in integrity and honesty. You can track the decline in our definition of morality. We have no definition of morality anymore. It's just whatever you feel like doing, whatever your heart tells you to do, however you choose to identify, we proceed as if there's no right or wrong, no short-term or long-term consequences to our choices or our actions. Just do what you feel like doing. That's our culture now. 
We've allowed ourselves to be shamed into accepting and allowing every kind of sick, abhorrent behavior imaginable as legitimate. We're not even allowed to say that we disagree. In a country that is known throughout the world and throughout history for freedom of speech, we don't have it anymore. And it's only going to continue to decay. We're now on the verge of legitimizing pedophilia. Yes, we are. That's where we're going next. You can track the decline in keeping the law and respect for authority. You can track the decline in our respect for God, our respect for rules, our attitude about having children outside of marriage, in our complete endorsement of every kind of crazy partying, drinking, drugs, anything to feel good. You can track the decline in our total disregard for any kind of boundaries. And let me say it again. We're not talking about laws. We're talking about the culture. What is acceptable, what is commonly embraced. We're talking about the despicable, dishonest depths that people are willing to go to to score political points. That's not primarily a politics problem. That's a culture problem. I'm talking about the barbaric practice of killing babies inside the womb and now outside of the womb. Oh, there he goes. I hate talking about abortion. Yes, folks, and that's the problem. We don't like to talk about things, so we ignore them. We turn them off. So that now we have become an irreversibly barbaric culture. Take a step back. Look at us. We are an irreversibly barbaric culture. It's not the laws that should cause us the greatest concern. It's that supposedly educated and cultured people can stand there and smile and act like there's nothing wrong with crushing the skull of an infant and selling his body parts. That's who we've become. And while some Americans would hear that and say, yes, we've won. I pray there's enough of us left who can drop our heads and weep and say, oh, my God, what have we become? Have mercy on us. Some people would say that this is all cyclical, that eventually the pendulum is going to swing back in the right direction again. The problem is there's no evidence of that and certainly no guarantee. What is true is that each new low becomes the new normal to a new generation. They've never seen decency. They were born into a world of broken homes, addicts, dysfunction, sleeping around, vile affections, rebellion, corruption. So here's the really bad news, in case you haven't figured it out already. If you believe in traditional family values, mom, dad, kids, house, love, stability, you've lost that culture and you're not getting it back. If you believe in respect, keeping the rules, obeying authority, working hard, integrity, saving, achieving, you've lost that culture and you're not getting it back. If you're a Christian, you love God, you believe the Bible, you take your family to church, you strive to live clean and please God. That used to be a very large part of our culture, but it's not anymore. We've lost it and we're not getting it back. Wow, you're sure sounding like a pessimist today. No, actually, with my faith in God and his word, I'm very much an optimist. But if you're going to attack a problem, you've got to make a real assessment of where you stand. You're not going to overcome the circumstances if you're not honest about the circumstances. Now, wait a minute. Attack the problem? Overcome the circumstances? You just said that we lost the culture. We're not getting it back. Well, yes, I'm convinced that unfortunately that's true. 
I'd love to be proven wrong, but I'm afraid that's true. We've lost the culture, and we're not getting it back. But that doesn't mean we give up on our families. That doesn't mean that we give up on our faith, our churches, our communities. It just means that we focus our attention and our energy on helping the people we love to thrive, even though the faith and the decency and the values we're teaching them are becoming more and more counterculture every day. There have been plenty of Christians and Christian groups who have thrived throughout the centuries in spite of the fact that their faith and their lifestyles were very much counterculture. So where do we begin? How do we thrive living in a culture that is hostile towards our way of life? Hostile, by the way, towards the very way of life that made liberty possible to begin with. But how do we overcome? Well, the first objective is very clear, and that is that you've got to have God intensely involved in everything you do. You don't have a chance in the world if God's not working in your life and in your family every single day. You've got to have God intensely involved in your life all the time. And if you want God to be intensely involved in your life every day, there's really only one place to go from there. Of course, I'm assuming you've already been saved. You've already been born again. If you don't know what that means, I'll explain it to you in just a few minutes. But for now, I'm talking about after you're saved. Where do you begin getting God to work in your life every single day? Please stay with me and think I'm going to show you something from the Bible. Usually when we talk about the troubles in our nation, sooner or later we come around to using the word revival. A revival is simply a renewing of life, and the word refers to a fresh spiritual start in your life, in your home, in your church, and ultimately in our nation. It's a fresh start that begins by us humbly reaching out to God, and then God mercifully steps in and takes over, leading us to a greater place of victory and renewal than we could ever get to on our own. I've preached about revival plenty, and I'm certainly all for it, not against it one bit. But let me point out to you that the word revive is an Old Testament word. It's not found in the New Testament. There is a different renewal of life word that God uses when he's dealing with his church in the New Testament, and that word is repent. The word repent literally means to think differently afterwards. Repentance is an about face. It's an abandoning of the old and an embrace of the new. Maybe the best synonym for repent is simply turn. There's no section of Bible writing that's more relevant to God's church in our day than the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. Jesus addresses seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. They are real churches, but they also are representative of the entire church age in two ways. First, these seven churches are different kinds of churches that have existed at any given time over the last 2,000 years. Second, these seven churches provide us with an outline of New Testament church history. If you study church history over the last 2,000 years and lay it up against these seven churches in the order that they're given, you would see that the parallel is unmistakable. If you really want to see what the church ought to be doing and ought not to be doing in this world, you'd do well to take a close look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So let me bring this all together. Jesus is dealing with his church in Revelation 2 and 3. He's dealing with all kinds of issues within the church, doctrinal issues, moral issues, holiness issues, obedience issues. And his remedy for every one of these churches is the same. Repent. Revelation 2, 2, Jesus says to the church in the city of Ephesus, I know thy works. Verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. The second church is the church of Smyrna. They were a heavily 
persecuted church. Jesus doesn't do an assessment of them, nor does he offer any rebuke. Why? Because when God's people are enduring persecution, he's not there to rebuke. He's there to love them and help them. The third church is the church in the city of Pergamos. In Revelation 2.13, Jesus says, I know thy works. And in verse 16, he says, repent. The fourth church is the church in the city of Thyatira. In Revelation 2.19, Jesus says, I know thy works. And then in verse 22, he tells them to repent of their deeds. The fifth church is the church in the city of Sardis. In Revelation 3.1, he says, I know thy works. And in verse 3, he says, hold fast and repent. The sixth church gets the best marks of the bunch, the church in the city of Philadelphia. Historically, this church represents that age just prior to ours, from the late 1600s to 1900, an age of unequaled world evangelism, the modern missions movement, the Great Awakening, the ministries of men greatly used of God like D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon. Amazingly, there's no rebuke for the Philadelphian church, no call to repentance. Why? Because they are already living the lifestyle of repentance, the lifestyle of getting right with God. So that brings us to the seventh and final church, the church in the city of Laodicea. Not only is this the most complacent and spiritually negligent of the bunch, but if you look at the parallel of these churches with church history, this is the church that represents the age in which we are living. I think it would be worth our time to consider the entire passage. It's not long, but it sure is descriptive. Listen to what Jesus says to this church in the city of Laodicea 2,000 years ago and see if it doesn't sound like he's describing the general state of the church today. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We've lost the culture. We're not getting it back. But that doesn't mean we should give up. Absolutely not. It means that we fight for the people we love by helping them to thrive, though our faith and our lifestyle is ever increasingly counterculture. We don't have a chance if we don't have God intensely involved in our lives every single day. And God clearly says that the way to get him involved is to live in a place of repentance every day. God's people are partying when we ought to be repenting. We're rocking out when we ought to be repenting. We're striving for material prosperity when we ought to be repenting. We need to be letting God show us where we personally have failed, what we need to do to make it right, what we have to fix, what we have to improve. We need to be daily turning to him. And that's where you need to start if you want to lead the people you love through the wilderness of our corrupt culture. You know what I love about Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea? 
is that while he gives harsh rebuke to the group, he extends this personal invitation to anyone who wants to overcome the failures of the group. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That verse is often used to call people to salvation, and that's perfectly fine. But its primary application is to Christians living in an age of spiritual compromise, complacency, decay, corruption, and neglect, inviting them to daily let Christ come into their lives and help them overcome. The theme of today's broadcast has not been a happy one, but we've got to face the facts, and then with all of our hearts turn to the Lord and let him lead us forward. In case you're listening today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I beg you not to walk away from your radio without taking care of that. Jesus died for your sins, and he rose from the dead, conquering death. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the Christian faith. That's the one message that God wants every person on this planet to hear. Jesus died for your sins so that you could be completely forgiven by God and have the assurance of everlasting life. Let me give it to you directly from the Bible. In the words of the most famous Bible verse in the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God isn't just inviting you. He's pleading with you to receive his gift of forgiveness and everlasting life by taking Jesus for yourself. If you're ready to do that, you need to deal directly with God right there where you are. Let me lead you through a prayer. Dear God, I know I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Right now, I'm turning from my sins. And I choose to receive Jesus as my Savior. Come into my heart. Save my soul. Take me to heaven when I die. Help me to know you while I live. Amen. If you just made the choice to take Jesus as your Savior, congratulations and welcome to the family of God. There is hope, Christian. Don't despair. But have the courage to repent and open the door of your heart to Jesus Christ every single day. Have a victorious week. God bless you. People of Northeast Baptist Church, thank you for spending a few minutes with us this morning. We appreciate your time, and we hope that you enjoyed the Forgiven broadcast. If you would like to share your thoughts about the program, you can call us at 203-798-7088. Northeast Baptist Church is an independent Baptist church located at 101 East Pembroke Road in Danbury. We invite you to worship with us at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Our worship service won't remind you of a funeral. And it won't remind you of a rock concert. It's just a little bit of heaven on earth. We'll see you again next Sunday morning at 7. God bless you. Have a great week. I am the child I stand here for you. My sins have been cast.